Chapter Twenty Four of From Bangkok to Bombay, Siam, French Indochina, Burma, Hindustan, by Frank G. Carpenter. This recording is in the public domain. Recording by Betty B. Delhi. I am at Delhi, official seat of the government of British India since 1912, stronghold of the Mohammedan conquerors for six centuries, and long before the coming of the followers of the Prophet, the capital city of peoples whose story is shrouded in the mists of tradition. The eighth Delhi is now going up. This is the so-called New Delhi, which is being built on the site of the ancient city to give proper housing and prestige to His Majesty's government in India. It is estimated that the new capital will cost not less than 40 millions of dollars. Included in the elaborate plans are specifications for an enormous government house for the viceroy and his staff and an equally imposing secretariat. Between the secretariat and government house is a raised causeway leading into the viceroy's court, an open space nearly a quarter of a mile long filled with grass, trees, and fountains. The new parliament building will have assembly halls for the Chamber of Princes, the Council of State, and the Indian Legislature, which holds its winter session in Delhi. While all these ambitious plans are being executed, the viceroy and other officials occupy a temporary city, gradually moving into the new buildings as they are completed. For some eight months of the year, the viceroy and his staff are at Simla, the summer capital, where the summer sessions of the legislature are held. Between the temporary capital and the new western metropolis rising on the plain is the old Delhi, scene of the six centuries of Muslim rule in India, and in many respects but little changed since the days of the Mughals. To get an idea of the native Delhi of today, throw away all your preconceived notions of what you thought it would be like. Jumble together a dozen different types of men and women, put them in the queerest costumes that you can imagine, and let the brightest of colors be contrasted with the yellowest, the brownest, and the blackest of skins. Here are the long-haired, savage-looking men of Kabul, come down with their horses and camels from Afghanistan. Here are sleek Hindus dressed in round caps and long white gowns with rich shawls of cashmere thrown about their shoulders. Here are Muslims in turbans and tall Sikhs in soldiers' uniforms, their long hair gathered up beneath their enormous colored headcloths. All of these and a hundred other specimens of humanity crowd along the great business thoroughfare of Chandni Chok and jostle each other on the narrow side streets. The Chandni Chok is one of the famous bazaar streets of India. It is 100 feet wide and has a strip of grass and a row of trees through its center and is lined on both sides with two-story houses. Each house has a balcony upon which at evening gather the Hindu families, the women with their heads covered so that only an eye can be seen and the children with almost nothing on. The first floors of these houses, which have no sidewalks in front of them, are taken up with little box-like stalls, in each of which squats a merchant. The customers sit on the ledges in front of the cubbyholes and haggle for an hour over every purchase. Here, in the dirtiest and most squalid of quarters, half-naked men are working gold and silver into long threads with such skill that two shillings worth of silver may be drawn out to 800 yards of fine wire. In the next pig pen establishment, these threads 
are being stitched into rich pieces of silk of the most delicate hues in another cell is a jeweler like other great-great-grandsons of those who built the delhi of the moguls and inlaid precious stones in the decorations of their gorgeous palaces he now works to catch the fancy of european and american tourists the delhi of today moves on amid the grand monuments of its past it was some eight hundred years ago that the place was first conquered by the moslem hordes from beyond the northern barriers of mountains within eleven miles of the present city a marvelous structure commemorates the victor kutbi ud din abak who came down into india at the end of the twelfth century this monument known as the kutab minar is supposed to be the most perfect tower in the world and is one of the seven architectural wonders of india the base is forty-seven feet in diameter and the tower rises to a height of two hundred and forty feet it is built in five stories of fluted sandstone and white marble and its coloring shades from the purplish red of the base through the pale pink of the second story to the white marble of the summit this part of india is filled with tombs some of which cost millions of dollars at sikandra i saw the grave of the mogul emperor akbar over which stands a temple of marble and sandstone akbar whose grandfather babur founded the mogul empire in fifteen twenty six was a contemporary of shakespeare bacon and queen elizabeth and he established a government in many respects the peer of any of that day he had courts military and police departments and a regular system of taxation taking one-third of the products from the land every year about him he gathered poets and literary men just as did queen elizabeth on the other side of the world his grandson was shah jahan who built the taj mahal at agra besides building most of the delhi of the grand moguls i have spent some time going about from one to another of the splendid structures within the old fort here there are two fine gates through its walls of red sandstone the delhi gate built by shah jahan is flanked by stone elephants the beasts of royalty the lahore gate erected by shah jahan's son has a grand archway and its vaulted cavern-like entrance leads through the walls to an inner gateway it has been called the noblest entrance to any palace its beauty was marred with bloodshed when in the mutiny of the native troops in eighteen fifty seven the british commissioner of the district was killed here inside the walls of the fort is a big grassy space on which stand the halls of audience the women's apartments the royal baths the mosques and all the marble and other stone buildings that make up the magnificent court of the grand moguls most wonderful of all and most representative of the splendor of these moslem emperors of india is the diwan e kaz the hall of special audience the grand moguls dispensed justice from a marble throne in the larger hall of public audience but only ministers of state and other important personages were admitted to the diwan e kaz this room is of noble proportions being ninety by sixty-seven feet and its walls are of white marble inlaid with semi-precious stones in shah jahan's time the ceiling was covered with silver but this was later stripped off and carried away lord curzon put up a wooden imitation of the original ceiling which the white ants have damaged considerably as i stood in this audience hall my hindu guide who by the way is very conceited 
pointed to a persian inscription upon the wall giving its translation if there is a paradise on earth it is this it is this it is this and as he concluded he said when her highness the viceroy was here i showed her through this room and explained all its beauties i read her the inscription and at the end she remarked yes and if there is a good guide in india you are he you are he you are he perhaps the boy told the truth but he is such an accomplished liar upon all other subjects that i doubt it at the end of the hall the emperor sat in state upon the peacock throne made for shah jahan at a cost of thirty million dollars it was a platform of solid gold six feet long by four feet broad resting on six massive feet of gold inlaid with rubies emeralds and diamonds over it was a golden canopy fringed with pearls and supported by twelve pillars encrusted with gems at the back were the figures of two peacocks with their tails spread and so inlaid with sapphires rubies pearls emeralds and other jewels as to display all the gorgeous colors of a real peacock between the two great birds was a life-size image of a parrot said to have been carved from a single emerald the eyes of one of the peacocks were formed of two immense diamonds one of which was the Kohinoor or mountain of light which is now among the crown jewels of england the throne itself was broken up by nadir shah the persian who overthrew the mogul emperor in seventeen thirty nine and massacred many of the people of delhi the pieces of the throne carried away by nadir after his two months occupation of the capital were patched together to make the present peacock throne of persia not far from the walls of the fort is another monument to the genius of the great shah jahan this is the juma mujid one of the biggest mosques in the world it is situated here on the banks of the jumna on a plateau of rock between the fort and the city it was built in 1644 and 5,000 workmen labored upon it, laying up day by day its white marble and red sandstone. Its three gateways are approached by grand flights of stairs of 40 steps each. Once the great doors of the main gateway swung back for none save the Mughal emperor himself. Nowadays, they are opened only for the chief commissioner of Delhi or the viceroy of India. There is room in the courtyard of the Juma Mujid for 10,000 worshippers. In its center is a great fountain where they wash before praying, and there are cloisters on its three sides. The floor of the mosque itself is divided into kneeling places of white marble bordered with black. Each is large enough to accommodate one man upon his knees with sufficient space in front of him to bow his head to the stone. All point toward Mecca, and as I walked through the building, I saw many praying. In the alcoves, worshippers were reading their Korans, and off at one side sat a crowd of women shrouded in white veils. A priest pointed out to me the beauties of the building, translating the text of the Koran inlaid here and there. He took me to the pulpit, which is cut out of a single block of marble, and as a special favor showed me the greatest treasure possessed by the mosque. This is kept in a vault of stone behind numerous doors, guarded by two gray-bearded followers of the prophet. At the direction of the high priest, these doors were opened. My curiosity rose as key after key was turned, and when at last I was shown a casket covered with glass, I expected to see a great diamond or some collection of rubies and pearls. 
I looked in and saw nothing at all until my Mohammedan guide pointed to a single rough red wiry hair in the center. The hair was about two inches long and fastened by glue to the casket so that it stood straight up. I was told that it was a real hair from the moustache of Mohammed and that its possession made the mosque especially holy. We are accustomed to look upon India as a land of the Hindus. It is, yet it has one Mohammedan for every three Hindus, and in muscle and in independence of spirit, the Moslem is frequently stronger than his caste-bound fellow countrymen. He forms a big element in the unrest of today, and many people believe that if a civil war should break out, or if the British should leave India, he would ravage the land from one end to the other. The power of the Moslem rulers were broken long ago, but the followers of the Prophet are scattered all over India, and in some of the provinces they are in the majority. The Mohammedans of India now number almost 70 millions, or about one-fifth of the whole population. This is nearly one-third of all the Mohammedans on earth, and more than there are in the five Moslem countries of Turkey, Morocco, Zanzibar, Persia, and Afghanistan put together. I find the Mohammedans here somewhat different from those of Egypt, Turkey, or Arabia. Their religion has been modified by contact with Hinduism. In some villages, for example, there are followers of the Prophet who believe in witches, who employ the Hindu astrologists to fix lucky days for their marriages, and who pray to the Hindu gods to give them sons. In some of the Muslim sects of India, there are castes similar to those of the Hindus. There are about as many sects among the Mohammedans as there are among Christians. The Prophet told his followers that after he died, the religion would be divided, and seventy-three parties would arise, only one of which would survive. There are more than seventy-three sects in the Mohammedan world of today. In India, the four principal groups are the Sunnites, the Shias, the Wahhabis, and the Progressives. In the last-named division are those Mohammedans who favor education and almost everything modern, and are the leaders of political unrest among the Moslems of India. The Sunnites and the Shias, who split off the question of the Caliphate, are leadership of the faithful, have long been the most prominent sects in the Mohammedan world. As to the Wahhabis, they are the Unitarians of Mohammedanism. They claim to have the purest form of the religion and to found their faith not upon saints, but solely upon the Quran and the Prophet. They do not venerate the tomb of Muhammad, and when they captured Medina about a century ago, they destroyed the relics and stripped off the ornaments of that sacred spot. There is another sect in India known as the Order of Assassins, which is also found in Arabia and Persia. It was instituted by a Mahdi, or Muslim religious leader, who appeared at the time of the Crusades and who believed in political assassination as a cure for various social ills. Somewhat different from the other Mohammedans of India are the Moplas of the Malabar territory in the presidency of Madras. They are people of mixed Arab and Indian descent, densely ignorant and extremely fanatical. In that district, there are about one million of the Moplas to two million Hindus, and it is the latter who are the landlords. The Moplas are kept in a constant ferment by the precarious tenure of lands from the Hindus, by the difficulty of acquiring sites for mosques and burial grounds, and by waves of religious agitation. During British rule, there have been no less than 35 outbreaks 
of moplas possessed by a frenzy to kill as many non-moslems as possible and thus win the martyr's crown among the most terrible was that which occurred in august nineteen twenty one spurred on by mohammedan extremists who preached the right of the turkish sultan to be the leader of the moslem religion throughout the world as well as by the hindu enemies of the british the moplas started another massacre they killed such europeans as could not escape slaughtered many of the hindus especially landlords desecrated temples and forced thousands of hindus to accept conversion to islam or be put to death pillage arson and destruction reigned in the malabar region until the british were able to restore order one effect of this bloody outbreak was to weaken the alliance between the hindus and the moslems in working for self-government in india there is a big awakening among the mohammedans in india they are asking and getting their full share of the government positions open to natives there seems to be a feeling among them that hitherto they have been slighted by both the british and their fellow countrymen of other religions in a recent speech one of them compared their position to that of the toad in the schoolboy's fable said the man to the boy why are you throwing stones at it it's only a toad yes was the reply of the boy and i'll teach it to be a toad the orator claimed that the other sects were trying to teach the mohammedan to be a toad he declared that this had been their policy for years and concluded by saying that the mohammedan toad like that of shakespeare might yet have a precious jewel in its head and it should be properly treated the desire for education is spreading among the moslems cheap translations of the sacred books are being circulated and associations for the improvement and elevation of the mohammedans are being formed the more progressive are now sending their boys to government schools and many are patronizing the mohammedan university at alagar this institution is situated about seventy-eight miles from delhi in one of the old cities of india it was started about half a century ago as a modern university and has a staff of english university graduates as teachers but its trustees are mohammedans and many of the professors are followers of the prophet besides offering the usual university courses it pays special attention to sanskrit arabic and persian and the students are instructed in the mohammedan religion the quran is read in the chapel and prayers are enforced the boys bowing toward mecca as they go through their devotions the alagar students are devoted to athletics their cricket team is one of the best in india and they strain and tug at football and go in for track sports the university is largely independent of the government and is supported principally by the contributions of mohammedans although it represents the more progressive element it has refused to support the political agitations of the extremists and has remained loyal to the british government to which its support is of immense value End of chapter 24